Good morning, Rethink Church. How are we doing today? Good morning. Good, good, okay. Well, we're going to hopefully make it a great day as we worship together. So I just invite you to sing along, sing if you know it, and we're just going to have a good time. Amen? Amen. 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 Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong As we wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, we will wait. Our God, you reign forever, our hope, our strong
Can we sing Amazing Grace together? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. creation cries, holy, you are lifted high, holy, holy forever, let's sing and the angels 
angels cry, holy, all creation cries, holy, you are lifted high, holy, holy forever. the highest your name is the greatest your name stands above them all all thrones and dominions all powers and positions your name stands above them all and the angels cry All creation cries, holy, you are lifted high, holy, holy forever. And if you've been forgiven, and if you've been redeemed, Sing the song forever to the Lamb. And if you walk in freedom, and if you bear His name, and sing the song forever to the Lamb. Sing the song forever and amen, and the angels cry. creation cries, holy, you are lifted high, holy, holy forever. Hear your people sing, hear your people sing, holy to the King of kings. Holy, you will always be holy, holy forever. Your name is the highest, your name is the greatest, your name stands above them all, all thrones, all thrones and dominions, all powers and positions, your name stands above them all, sing your name, your name is the highest, your name is the greatest, your name stands above them all. Amen. 
powers and positions. Your name stands above them all. Holy, all creation cries. Holy, you are lifted high. Holy, holy forever. Hear your people sing. Hear your people sing. Holy to the King of Kings. We serve a holy God. It's amazing that we get to spend eternity with an amazing Abba Father. And it's because of his grace and mercy that we have this everlasting relationship with him. So this is an eternal song that we get to sing with him, that we get to sing to him. So God, I thank you. We thank you for salvation through Jesus that gives us that everlasting connection to you, that we can sing this eternal song about your holiness. There's none like you. There's none beside you. And we want to give you the honor that you are due, God. So, Lord, let us live lives of worship until that day comes that we see you face to face. Let our lives bring you glory. God, we love you and we honor you. And we pray that you um, just continue to bless us and keep us let us become more aware of your presence in our lives. And Lord, I ask that you bless this service. Allow um, Pastor Mark to speak your words that will penetrate our hearts so that we can carry it with us through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Rethink. My name is Roland. I'm one of the leaders here at Rethink. And uh, if you are new here or you're visiting, thank you guys for coming out. Uh, we have a gift for you out in the guest services area by the coffee. Um, just our way of saying thank you. And um, we would love to get to know your name and why you chose to come here today. And um, we're having student ministry here tonight at 5.30 to 7. Um, if you have a student, bring them out. It's going to be a good time of food 
games. Um, we'll have a message. You know, it's tough. Um, students trying to figure out their own faith, right? Because uh, God is holy, but he's also your friend. So do you treat him like your friend or you treat him like he's holy? So we're going to kind of talk about that, that middle road of um, God's holiness, but also being closer than a, a brother to you. So if you have a student, bring them out tonight at 530, and we're going to have a good time here. Um, also, there's an app called Parent Q. Uh, it's Parent C-U-E. There it is. Um, it's another resource for you guys. Uh, it has um, a lot of stuff like you talk around the dinner table. It has questions for that when the students wake up or when your kids wake up in the morning questions and videos, Bible verses, um, a lot of resources. Uh, sometimes, it, I mean, like I talk to my kids all the time, right? But sometimes it, it's hard to get a conversation out of them. So it has um, engaging questions that you can ask your kids. And so that's just another resource we have for you guys. You associate, like you sign up, download the app, associate yourself with Rethink Church, and then you go from there and you get all those resources for free. So that's another resource for you guys. On your seats, you'll see these little cards that say <laughs> love, dating, and sex. Wow. Talk about that in the church, right? Uh, we're going to have a little mini-series coming up. So you can give this card to somebody and invite them to church. And you could sit next to them awkwardly <laughs> while we talk about sex, love, and dating in church. Uh, we're going to have a little mini-series coming up on that. So take these cards with you and pass them out. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have that. Um, tithing time, well, talk about putting God first. Um, we say that all the time, seek his kingdom first. Um, the Bible tells us to keep God first and to seek him first. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. But really it should be in all things, in our finances, in our relationship, in our daily decisions. God should be first. We should consider him, right? God, I consider you in this situation. Does this make you happy? Does this not make you happy? Um, so with our finances right now, we're asking you guys to uh, consider God. Seek him first. Um, what would please him with the way you use your finances or your giving? Uh, there's a couple ways to give here at Rethink. And it's not just like your money doesn't just go to nothing, right? In the black box, there's one way to give. Or you could go to rethinkchurch.cc click the give tab and give there but today's also our mission Sunday so when you give um, you're, you're, you're saving lives we've rescued children from sex slavery around the world uh, through a mission called Destiny Rescue because you guys are willing to give th these kids are rescued out of sex slavery and they're given another chance at life um, they're, they're given um, the means to do have a job right or to be restored or just to be safe um, so because of your generosity, we've been able to rescue students, uh, students, I got students on my mind. <laughs> we've been able to rescue kids that are uh, being human, human trafficking or sex trafficking. Um, you guys are a giving church and we appreciate that. So thank you guys. So again, you can give in the black box or rethinkchurch.cc and click the give tab and give that way. Mark has an awesome message this morning. So lean in. Amen.
hey, good morning and welcome to church. So, so uh, let me just pray real quick because this is gonna, we're going to drink from a fire hose again today. Does that make sense? And I want to make sure we drink from the right fire hose. So, um, <clears throat> but let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. Thanks for everything you've done for us and how you graciously love us and lead us. And God, for some of us, we're sitting here and it's not a great week. And God, I pray right now that you would just allow us to just sit in your presence. And some of us are having a great week. God, would you let us sit in your presence? And the great, beautiful thing about this is we don't sit in your presence based on our own merit, based on how we feel. We sit in your presence because of your sacrifice on the cross, Jesus. And the fact that you set things in place and you paid the punishment of our sins, that we do not have to be, we don't have to walk around entangled by the power of sin. That's the beauty of the gospel and the power of the cross. And so God, I pray right now that you would allow us just to dwell into that. And for some of us, we're going to be honest, it's just not a great time in general. We just came here for less desperation things. And so God, I pray right now that you would just meet people where they're at. And you would take whatever words that are jumbled up in my brain. It was funny, we were just talking in my office and they're like, that's your notes? And I was like, hopefully. Um, and I pray, pray that whatever's jumbled up in here will just come clearly and just come out in uh, an understandable way. We love you, God. Continue to pray this. Amen. So we're going to start off with a question. What is home? What is the actual definition of home? Anyone know? We use it all the time. But how would you define home? How would you work through home? How would you um, understand what home is? And just all that. Talk amongst yourself for a minute. Let me fix the technical difficulty. So, um, <laughs> So, maybe. There you go. All right, so that, here's Oxford's def definition of home, okay? Uh, Oxford's definition of home is simply this. It's a place where the person lives. It's a place where you belong, right? You live there permanently. You hang out there, all that kind of stuff. Um, humanity's first home was the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? And so, we all talk about, we've talked about it for a while, we're no longer allowed back into the Garden of Eden. It's just this weird thing. And we've been exiled from the Garden of Eden, and that's just the, the place where we're at. It's just this strange feeling to know that we've been, like, we've been called somewhere, but now we can't live somewhere. We've been like exiled. And because of the way that we handled ourselves, or our ancestors handled themselves, I should say, uh, there, we're no longer allowed back. And this theme of exile is a sleeper theme in the scriptures. Nobody loves to talk about exile, but it's this theme that you see over and over and over again. And today we're going to take a big, big picture look at exile and the theme of it and how it impacts you and I, how we maybe we should start to understand this because it's counterculture here in America. Americans, we love to be in power. We love influence. We love this top-down leadership. And I want to be at the very top of the pinnacle and the pyramids and all this. If you look at most organizational structures, it's very oddly reminiscent of Egyptian pyramids, right? That whole like top-down thing. And so it's like, hmm, maybe we've given into this idea and we can get into all that later on. But um, <clears throat> so we're just going to maybe understand this a little bit differently. Let me tell us a story and maybe this will help us understand this. In 1725, there's this little boy who was born. His name is John Jr. His dad was a John Sr. That's how this works. Does that make sense? Seniors, give, you get it. So John Jr. is born, right? It's beautiful. It's great for a few years. And then six years into it, his mom dies. 
His dad was a, uh, traveled in the Navy, was a merchant shipman, stuff like this. And so he was often like kind of in and out of his life, but paying the bills, sending money home, all that kind of stuff. And it was great for a while because whatever. But then when his mom died, everything just fell apart. At the age of six years old. And nobody really understood that like John Jr. was acting out because of the traumatic issues that just happened, right? And so he went from boarding school to boarding school. He kind of got pushed around. And his dad's still like in and out of his life, but the boarding school is supposed to take care of his kid, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's why you send them to boarding school, I would imagine. I've never sent my kids to boarding school yet. So um, <laughs> I, had to, I always have to leave that in there. Now that like Shad is out of the house, it's like whatever, you know. Uh, but here's the deal. Like, he's, he's there and at 11 years old. John Jr. joins John Sr. on the old open seas. He goes on five total voyages and he like, they just can't stand him. He's this 11-year-old, he's just like this rage, you know what I mean? Like, imagine the angst of a teenager, a pre-teenager, but now you're in a confined ship with grown adults. And now you're supposed to do grown adult work? Why? You know what I mean? And so he, he doesn't fit in there. Um, he goes home, and because he doesn't have an education other than being a, a, a shipman and stuff like that, he, he gets sent around and all this. And so here he is, he's just kind of dealing with this. And he gets fired after job, after job, after job, because they have this unrealistic expectation that you show up on time, you do your job, and you don't start fights. How oppressive are those employers? I can't believe this, right? And so here, here he is. He's doing this. And this is part of that process. He's just trying to figure this out. And uh, in 1743, he's uh, visiting his hometown. And uh, all of a sudden, he gets captured the navy the english navy would do this if they needed people to like fill in in their roles kind of like a draft then they would just capture you basically and you would be part of that that thing because of his prior experience though he would he got put, promoted to midshipman and uh he was in charge of some people and all this halfway through this voyage though he tries to desert and they capture him and they flog him they flip him 80 like eight dozen times in front of all 300 of his crew and then they rinsed them off, making sure they didn't have infection with salt water from the ocean. And he gets demoted. And then somewhere along the line, he gets basically traded uh, to the ship, the merchant ship called the Pegasus. And he gets left by the crew and the captain of the Pegasus in West Africa. And in West Africa, he becomes a slave himself. And this have this conversation with the slave master himself as he's planting the lime trees and the slave master says, wouldn't it be weird if you came back and you collected the fruits of your labor? And John was like, John Jr. was like, that would be weird. Meanwhile, he's writing notes back home and he's smuggling them with the merchants to get back to John Sr., who's still back in England. And John Sr. is kind of worried about his own kid, but he knows this life. Like, he knows that there's like moments and months where you just don't hear back from people. And so he starts getting these letters being sent back to him from John Jr. in the West African island. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, something's wrong. So John Newton Sr. sends a crew to go out and find him, to look for him. He kind of knows generally where he's at. And so he, he gets back there. He, bought, he purchases him back. He redeems him, like legally redeems him back into the land of the free uh, and stuff like this. And then he sends him back from West Africa back up to England. And while he's back, going back up to England, this violent storm takes place and just tears the ship apart. The uh, hole hits the hull of the, the, the boat. And a cargo crate falls right into the hall, the hole, to at least slow down the flooding. 
So now they can at least get somewhere. They're not going to sink immediately. Does that make sense? And so while they're doing this, John Jr. doesn't really have anything. I mean, think about this. He went from being a slave, and now he's going to sink in the ocean. Great, thanks a lot. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> I could have just done this in West Africa and without the drowning part, trapped underneath. You know, like, so he's, he's desperate, so he starts reading the Bible. It's the only thing that he could find to read. And as he's reading the Bible, this theme of, like, I am a wretched man because of the decisions I've made. I've burnt bridges, I've caused fights, I've demoralized people, I've torn people down, I've done all these things. I don't know anything about like what that would feel like in my own life. I'm sure you don't either. But like he comes to this realization as he's reading the word of God that he's a wretched man. And at the same time, he comes to the realization that God is not surprised by his wretched sinfulness. That he's like, God knew this. And this, this beautiful thing takes place where all of a sudden now, He's like, God's not surprised by it, and he continually extends grace to him, to not just him, but all humanity. And he's just like, I can't, fi- I can't understand it. I don't fathom it. He gets back to England. He's not really a Christian yet, but at least he knows he's a wretched person. It's that process. Does that make sense? And so he's like, I, I guess I'm a horrible person. At least, at least you know that now, right? Some of us, we just need to have that realization as well. Like, you have to get to that point. You've made horrible things. You don't just get a gold star all the time. Uh, you ha- you've screwed things up too. So have I. But the beautiful thing about this is we have grace that continually gets extended to us. While he's on land, he can't figure out how to like, just live because his experiences, as he feels like an exile in England. I mean, imagine this. You've been on a ship. This is all before he's 23 years old. Right? Like, imagine the life experience at the 23. But by the time he's 29, he's going to have a stroke because of life decisions and all this. And he's, he's sitting in England. He doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Like he just, he's been pushed around. He's been passed around. He's been a slave. He's changed. His experiences have changed him. Have you ever gone home from being away from college or gone away from somewhere and you've experienced life and now you're home and you're like, this is not the same. This is, this is that feeling. Uh, and always, he's also noticing that England's become more of a greedy country that they just love the money. They love the merchant. And when we say merchant, let's just be honest. We know what that means. It's the slave trade. It's not just the goods and the products. They saw people as goods and products as well. And so he's, he's wrestling through this whole thing. And, but he's, he's, he still needs to pay these pesky little things called bills. So he has to go get a job. And the only job he could really come to find is he gets hired to be a captain of a merchant ship. The slave transatlantic slave trade got uh, opened up by the Portuguese for going from West Africa to Port- Portugal. By the time that John's involved, England is uh, shipping goods from, from West Africa to the Americans. And so he's doing this, <clears throat> and he's reading the Bible as he's doing this. And once again, it's this wave of, I'm a wretched man. And he talks about this in his journal, where he's looking down on the, on the, on the boat itself, where they're, like, they've got people packed in there, just like cargo, not people. You know what I mean? And he talks about this one time where this, hum- this, this person got sick and died, and all they did was pick them up and throw them over the ocean. And this wave of guilt and wretchedness. He has this, this moment of just shame of like, I've torn families apart, and I've, I have nothing else to give. And at the same time, grace is being offered to me? Why would grace be offered to me? He's gone from being a slave, and he understands the ins and outs of slave, but now he's making a slave trader. And this wretchedness just can't, sh- he can't shake it. 
And he, and he has this moment where he's out at sea and he gives his life to Jesus. He, he gets washed in the grace that Jesus offers him. He goes back and because of the conviction that he holds, he's like, there's no way you can be a Christian and slave in, in any form of the slave like, process. You can't own slaves. You can't slave trade. You can't do anything. Like, and so he quits it. And he, he's like, I'll just figure out what to do, how to pay these bills later, but I can't do this. And some of us, we need to understand this. If you have an immoral way of life that you're, you're paying bills, you have to get to this moment of like, God, I'll trust you. I'll, I'll figure this out. I remember this one time I had a lady who worked for me, and she, uh, <clears throat> it was right when the recession in 08, 09 were, uh, happened. She's like, hey, I'm putting my two weeks in. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, where are you going to work? And she was like, I'm going to go work at a strip joint. And I was like, what? And she's like, I, make, I can make twice as much money doing this. And I was like, you can't. And it was one of those moments of like, uh, how far do we take this conversation? So we just sat and had the conversation for as long as I could. And it was one of those moments of like, okay, I, I think you should trust God, but it's not my decision. It was one of the saddest moments. Does that make sense? That people literally have pay, bills to pay. She was a single mom, and she needed to pay much, make as much money as possible. And I just like, it broke my heart. And I love it when, pa- when pastors and Christians try to make these decisions without actually being involved in people's lives. Does that make sense? Like, we have to have these conversations, but at the same time, you have to come to the point where you can trust God to say, God, I'm gonna, you, I, I, can you give me what I need? So here's John, he's doing this, and he pursues this calling to be a pastor. And it's in the Anglican Church. 1764, he gets ordained in uh, the Anglican Church. He's a priest. And in 1772, he sits down to write a poem, just to try to work through his process, just to get the understanding of what he's doing, because he's sitting in England, but he's in exile again. Because now his experience has changed him to see what he was blind to before. How the greed of the English Empire and the British Empire and all that has led into the slave trade. Greedy Americans, we need to have our understanding about this as well, but that's a different topic for a different day. But all of a sudden, here he is, and he's just like, man, I, was like, I, can't, I, I didn't see it before, but now I see it. And he doesn't feel at home. He's exiled because of his convictions. He's exiled because of his experience. He's exiled because of all of this. And he sits down, and what we just sang about Amazing Grace, he writes this out. And this is the story that we get to look through. Imagine having that life experience and to sit down and just to say, I just want to like throw it all on the ground. I wonder if John Newton would get canceled if he was a pastor and he told this story in our culture today. We're so quick to cancel, like we just we don't like people's story, we just cancel them. Instead of saying, let's let's see if you can develop through and what God wants to write through you. 1780, he joins the abolitionist movement, <clears throat> and he sits down with other people like William Wilberforce and stuff like that. And uh, he just works through this whole process. And he just says, okay, however I can do this work thing, let's just see if we can see where God's creation goes and call it the culture, right? So this is the story that we're going to work through today. What does it look like to be in exile, even in exile that you feel? And you're not necessarily in exile. Like some of us, we would, like in 2024, are we being exiled from our house? Not really. We're not being pushed out. We're not being banned a lot like that. Um, some of us may be dealing with some of those things, but <clears throat> 17, it's like in 1772, this, this realization of the wretchedness and his, his gr- God's grace just washed over him in such a way that these words just kind of easily just flowed through him. And we sing this today, right? It's one of those songs that can kind of cross over culture and genre and all this other stuff. Like, if you just look it up, like I looked it up in Spotify, there's country music artists who sing this, there's R&B artists that sing this, 
There's even like bagpipes and punk music, was, and that was my favorite genre. And I was like, yes. I ignored all the country music stuff. I was like, who needs this, right? But like it crosses all forms of genres, right? Let me ask you this. Are you doing anything with your life right now that will cross genres that will be lasted for generations? Our first call as humans is to create a God-honoring, Christ-centered culture wherever you are, where you work, where you live, and where you play. This is what God tells the humans in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply, rule over the fish in the earth, like rule over the earth and all this. Now, you may not have to rule over the fish in the seas and stuff like that, but you probably have an office to work in. You have a desk. You have family members. You have something that you can rule and reign over. What are you doing with that? Are you ruling and reigning in such a way that God's presence is, is there because of you? The Celtic the theologians called this a thin place. And the thin places leading up to this point were like, under the pagan or the Wiccan religions was around nature, was around trees, was a high place and stuff like that. There's a lot of rituals to it. There's a lot of prayers that you would say, sacrifices that would be made and stuff like this. You had to get the words correctly. And the Celtic Christians, if you're like, whoa, whoa, that's not what this looks like. We can actually just pray and have got Christ-like decisions and we can change the culture that we're in. And so when we talk about thin places, where the, where the places, the veil between heaven and earth is so thin that you just you walk into the presence of God. Does that describe your workplace? Some of us are like, heck no. Like, let me tell you about my workplace. It's more like hell on earth. You know what I mean? Like, that's what some of it feels like. But that's not what God has asked us to do. God has asked us to create a thin place, to partner with him. Whether it's a home, whether it's a workplace, whether it's a semi-truck, whether it's an office space, whether it's a cubicle, are you creating a thin place so when people walk into your presence, you're, you're representing Jesus wherever you are? And how do you do that as an exile? How do you do that if you're, if you're not fitting in this world? Because we don't fit in this world. We're not supposed to fit into this world outside of the Garden of Eden. And yet, this is where we're at. Our first exile, if you want to look at all the exiles that we're going to look into, the first one is the Garden of Eden. We've been banned, we've been pushed out. That's what the idea of exile is. Uh, and, and we have this desire to go back to it. Secular people, secularism would tell you that we can do this through the good works of humans. And just human secularism and stuff like that would create this utopia. We get rid of the bad people, we tame them, we medicate them and all this. And that's pretty much what it looks like. Behavior modification, right? And the, and the, the challenge of that is it's, it's not a challenge. It's not, it's not possible. No matter how good we are as humans, we're not going to create this. I think we've seen what humans are capable of. There's goodness, but then there's also not goodness, Right? And that's the challenge. How do you act like, and until people wake up to this idea that you're a wretched person, you can preach to them all you want. But they're not going to come up with that realization that you're a wretched person, there's sin inside of them, and all that. 20 years ago when I started pastoring, and when I said the word sin, people knew it. Now, they're like, what's that? You have to, you have to actually show them what their, decision, their decisions, the way they were living, is actually sinful. And do you think people love that? Probably not, but somehow we have to make this happen in, in, in a Christ-like loving center and stuff like that. But this desire to go back to the garden is there because that's what, our, that's what we're ordained, that's what we're created for. The second exile that you see in the Bible is in Genesis with the guy named Joseph. Joseph is his younger brother. He tells his older brothers that you're going to be, I have this dream where you're going to bow down to me. I wonder how that went over. They wanted to kill him, right? <clears throat> Instead, they settled on selling him into slavery and pushing him out of his house. 
he was no longer allowed to go back to his house because he was a slave in Egypt. He's been exiled from his household into the slavery. And so he's in there and he has this uh, miraculous event where like, and, and he goes from being a slave to Potiphar and Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him, accuses him of all this. Now, the details are here Then you have to read through this culturally speaking. Potiphar, ha- he's a slave master. If he really thinks that Joseph was trying to sleep with his wife, why would he throw him in prison? Slaves are property. He easily could have just killed him. Instead, he put him in prison. I'm pretty sure he realizes his wife wasn't always faithful. And so he's like, well, I have to do something. I have to show, I have to show that I'm in charge. I have to show all this, so I'm going to put you in prison. It's this way that you can see that God's hand is still in Joseph's life. That even with this accusation, even with like, man, what in the world? Like, thanks a lot, God. I got saved from being killed, but now I'm going to go into slavery, and then I'm going to get killed in slavery? You know what I mean? Like, thanks a lot. <clears throat> so uh, he goes in, and you see God's hand in there. And then in prison, he gets forgotten about, he gets ignored, but he finally gets to tell, this, like how, tell dreams and interpret dreams. And miraculously, God puts us at the right time. Imagine if the cupbearer went back and said, hey, um, I know this guy who can interpret dreams, but the Pharaoh never needs to have these dreams interpreted. How easy would it have been that to be forgotten? And then all of a sudden, when, when Pharaoh has these dreams that need to be interpreted and stuff like this, he's like, oh, yeah, I know a guy. Isn't it great to know a guy? Right? So <clears throat> here's this guy. He knows a guy, and he's like, yeah, if I can do this. And so he goes in there, and he interprets the dreams, and God allows him to do this, and he saves him and gives him second in command. And then the, there's the famine that's been going on for two years. Jacob and his sons and all this are in Canaan land, about 300 miles away, and they're like, hey, we need some food. And they hear that Egypt has some grain, and Jacob looks at his kids, he's like, I don't know what you're staring at each other for. Go get some grain. You guys are grown adults. Go get it. You know what I mean? Why do I, as an old man, have to tell you to what to do? And so they do this. They go, and they do it. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And this miraculous story takes place where they're redeemed and restored to each other. And there's like this weird trickery stuff and divination and all this other stuff. Um, and, and you can see this God's hand is continually in them and, and in this life. This family was supposed to be for seven years. They've been in for two years. How many years does this leave? Five years, right? But a decade later, after the famine is done, Jacob dies. Which raises the question. Why are the Israelites, the people of this bit larger family, still in Egypt? It was supposed to be temporary. What happens is we get caught up in our temporary reliefs, and we know it's not God's plan for us, but man, it feels so good in this temporary moment. Credit cards, ice cream bowls, all this other stuff, right? And then before you know it, one ice cream bowl a night has made you 300. Like, I remember hitting this point of my life, 300 pounds. And I was like, God, I just wanted an ice cream bowl. Like, well, yeah, you also should probably taken a walk, eat some vegetables. Hmm, I don't know about that, right? You get in one credit card, you have one bill being paid, all this. I remember when Heather and I woke up and we added up all of our credit card bills, it was $18,000. It went from like buying one suit in an emergency to all of a sudden $18,000 in three years. And I had this moment of like, how are we getting out of this? And God's like, I don't know, you got yourself into it. Thanks a lot, God. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but here's the deal. If you read the Exodus story, if you read the account of the Exodus story, I don't know if the Israelites realized that they were slaves by the time Pharaoh comes around. Do you know a slave who owns a house? And yet they owned houses in Egypt. Do you know a slave who could just leave and go to Midian? 
And yet somehow Aaron leaves Egypt and walks and meets Moses and Midian. I don't think the Israelites knew how much enslaved they were. And some of us, we don't know how enslaved we are to this culture either. It's just natural. Everybody has credit card debt. Everybody's overweight. Everybody fill in the blank. We just have got so accustomed to this temporary reliefs and this temporary way of life. And God's like, just because you feel like it's okay doesn't mean it is okay. And some of us, we need to have these moments of like, oh yeah, let's, let's find this out. The next exile that you see is in uh, the Babylonian exile. This is the major one of the themes of the Bible, right? So in the 700s BC, the Assyrian Empire comes and takes over the northern kingdom, uh, which is Israel, and then the southern kingdom is left. 587 BC, the Babylonians come and they conquer, they wipe away, and they take thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish people with them to Babylon, modern-day Iraq and Iran. And they're forcing people who have survived in the mountain exile to serve the military families who've just killed their relatives. Clean the beds, feed them, cook them, and stuff like that. Like, cook for them, not cook them. That'd be horrible. But, like, <clears throat> I guess justifiable. You could be like, hmm, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and think about this. How would you react if you were now forced to go into exile? Would you trust God? Would you trust that God has his best, your best interests in mind? Would you hate that people? How easy would it be to abandon faith? How easy would it be to do any of this? But here's Jeremiah. So Jeremiah uh, 29, he's on the banks of, a refu- uh, banks of a river going into this refugee camp, and he has this word from God. He writes it down, he hands it to this, lady, uh, to this person, and he sends it back with them. Here's what it says. This is Gen- Jeremiah chapter four, or sorry, 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I, I God, have carried into Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives of your, for your own sons and give your daughters into marriage. Uh, give your sons and daughters in marriage. Increase. Do not decrease. How easy would it have been to be like, we're not, why would we pass this gen- next generation into this? exile. Like, forget this. We'll just, we'll just die off here. You know what I mean? That's not what God has in store for him. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city that I've carried you off into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, then you will prosper. Yes, this is the Lord Almighty. The God of Israel says, do not let those prophets, and he's talking about the false prophets and diviners, and deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams. Uh, encourage the, all that they have. Verse 10, here's what he says. Seventy years are completed in Babylon, then I will come and fulfill you. I'll get you back, basically, uh, in all this. For I know the plans, this is verse 11. This is quoted and misquoted all the time. For I know I have the plans for you, uh, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And he goes on and on. But here's the deal. When you take that one last phrase, we love when we take things out of context, don't we? Right? You can do anything with the Bible verse out of context. I love that concept. But here's the deal. Here's Jeremiah 29, 11, but he's been talking about like going into exile. He's going into, like, we love to, when graduation time comes around. Graduates, just look how many times you see this. And I wish they would just be honest. You're going to go into exile. You're no longer in high school. You just accomplished the easiest part of your life. Good job. You did what was expected. You got a degree. Right? Like, and now, here's the real world. Enjoy, adults. We know this, right? So, well, we don't do that because we want you to feel good. We want to make you encouraged and all this. But when Jeremiah writes this down, 
He's sitting down there and he's giving the, he's giving the nation of Israel, the, the Jewish people, an understanding of how to handle themselves in exile. And I think we can glean from something of this. Some of us are going to sit in our first election. We're going to cast a vote. And you're going to hope and pray that your vote matters. And you're going to sit back and you'll be like, what the crap did I just do? Right? And here's the deal. You can learn. The reason we read the Scriptures is not just to have more information. And it's not even to be more biblical. The reason we read the Scriptures and we study the Scriptures as followers of Jesus is so that we can become more Christ-like. And how do we handle ourselves in these moments? 2016, when I was a pastor, I remember, actually, I can go back into um, Bush and Kerry. I can go back into Gore. Like, I remember watching this, and each, each election, followers of Jesus question, is God controlled? Is God still good? Based on every single result. More recently, in 2016, I remember people coming into my office saying, is God really in control? Is he good? Because of the presidential election results. 2020, the exact same conversation took place. Is God in control? Is he still good? How could this person get elected? I really don't know. I don't care. You know why? Because it's not where I put my hope. If you put your hope into political agendas, you're always going to be disappointed. So don't put your hope in it. Don't be ignorant to it. Don't just be like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. Right? Like, be aware of it, but don't put your hope in it. Put your hope into Christ. He told us all of these things are going to take place at some point, right? Like, if you look at the book of Revelation and what's going, currently going on, you should be aware. Your spidey sense should be going off at some degree. But here's, take that with a grain of salt, because every single generation has had exactly the same moments. You don't know. Jesus does not even know when he's coming back. God the Father does. So don't try to figure out the formulas and be like, well, I deciphered it, and here's what I saw. No, you didn't. You ate some Taco Bell at 3 in the morning, and all of a sudden you had this dream, and you're like, oh, I'm, I know now it all. So, anyway. So what does Jeremiah tell, his father, tell the people of the exile to do while they're in exile? Seek the good of the city. Build houses. Not rent. Build houses. Right? Renters and buyers, and I'm like, not, not throwing any shade or anything like this, but there's a whole, like, you're going to own it, and you're going to take care of it at a different level. So if you need to work towards buying a house, work towards buying a house. Seek the good of a city. Don't just show up and consume. Contribute. So we've talked about this before. If I look at resumes and I'm like, mm, this person's just consuming, I'm not even bringing them in for an interview. I don't care whose son and daughter they are. I want to see contributors, Right? And so this is part of that process. How are we actually doing this? Um, love the people that you live with. Do you know your neighbors' names? It's really hard to love people when you don't know their names. It's extremely convenient to drive into your, dri your driveway in your neighborhood, press the button, open the garage door, you pull in, you close the garage door, and you go into your house. And you never have to, It's so convenient. It's like an introvert's love language, isn't it? Like, I don't have to talk to anybody. I didn't have to say hi to anybody. I know. I see you. But how do you love the people around you without knowing their name? Get to know them. I don't care how. Get to know them. Throw them a party. Cook them food. Do something. But get to know them and love them well and seek the good of the city. And if you need to, just make it smaller and smaller. Just go for one neighbor at a time. If that's your emotional battery life, just do that. If it's a wave, if you don't wave to people, at least start waving to people. Give them a head nod. 
You know what I mean? If, if the whole wave is bad, just go the, mm-hmm. acknowledge them, you know? Start there. It's like baby steps. So uh, here's a side note. We had some free time in one of my classes. I teach high school in one of my classes. They tried to teach me how to dance, and I just looked at them and was like, I'm not even going to try. And they're like, can you not rock back and forth? I'm like, I'm not even going to try. And they're like, and they kept, like, it's just baby steps, Mr. Oh, it's just baby steps. I'm not even going to try. And I'm like, I don't even clap under them. I can't even, like, no. So, but I understood what they're saying. It's the whole baby step mentality, right? So seek the good, seek the, the good of the, people, the city, love on people. Here's the next one. Increase numbers, do not decrease. What's that sound like? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Our calling, our number one thing that we're supposed to do is to rule and to reign as kings and queens because that's exactly what we are. Be fruitful and multiply. Do not decrease in your number. Remember your calling. So how do you rule when you're in exile? That's exactly it right there. And what happens when you get taken? This, uh, this, so when you look at the exile, there's a lot of books of the Bible that get carried and covered in this. Um, there's these royal, like Judean royal people who get carried off, and because of their royalty, uh, they get thrown into the Babylonian court. And so uh, you have uh, these four people, five people that get put in there, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. And you see them, and you're just like, man, this is kind of cool, like to follow their, their pattern, stuff like this. Now, let me just ask you this. If you make every issue an issue, does everything sound okay? Or does it just sound like a clinging gong? Right? They have to use extreme wisdom on how to actually handle themselves in exile. They cannot fight every single battle. They just watch their army get wiped out by the most powerful army in the world. Do you really think their little like sword skills are going to do anything? No. Even if they know how to like do any hand-to-hand combat, not going to do anything. So how do you handle yourself in the exile? They chose this path of no, no violence, but they're not going to abandon their faith in God. They, they chose to choose certain battles and let other things go, right? They chose to let their names being changed go. That, man, no matter what you call me, when people used to call me names, now they don't necessarily do, but like they used to, I, that used to irritate me all the time. And so I have a, my, my older brother, his like, nickname in high school was Chunk. His friends would call me Mini Chunk, and that would just drive me nuts. When a grown man calls me buddy, I'm going to throat punch that person. I mean, square in the like, don't you dare treat me like a child. You know what I mean? Now, if, I, if you see me do this when somebody's talking to me, I'm pretty pissed. All right? So if I do this, I'm like, oh, yeah. If I put my hands in my pockets because I, want, I have to, like, physically control myself. You're welcome to, like, as your pastor, that's, you're welcome. Anyway, so <laughs> here's, here's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what do they change their names to? Shadrach, which is the uh, Hananiah is Shadrach, it's commander of Aku. Aku is the moon god. He's, he's going to allow himself to be called this. Mishael is Meshach, which is who is Aku. So if you want to know what Aku, the moon god, looks like, look at Meshach. Hmm, maybe not. Azariah gets changed to Abednego, which is the slave or the servant of Nebu, a god. And the book of Esther, there's a guy named Mordecai. His name is derived from Marduk, which is the part of the Babylonian pantheon of gods as well. They don't be like they don't drop. They don't care. They're not wasting time on this. They're like, you want to call me this? That's fine. It doesn't change my identity. 
middle schoolers and high schoolers, hear me on this. It does not matter what other people call you. Those of you who act and treat yourself like a high school and middle schooler, adult-wise, maybe you should pick on this as well. It doesn't matter. Don't fight that battle. Who cares? Certain things you have to let go. Right? The next thing is the clothing. They, get, they are given royal court clothing. And they just accept it. There's part of the Torah that tells them not to wear anything whether it's single strand, the, the untwisted threads is what it says in the, in the Torah. It says do not wear twisted threaded clothing. Royal court clothes are elaborate clothing with multiple different kinds of threads. So if you ever hear somebody tell you that you should not be wearing something or whatever because the Bible tells you, just look at them and say, take your polyester shirt off then, right? So uh, anyway, so, um, so all of a sudden they accept that, and that's not a big deal. They don't fight that battle. So they fight the battle, and it's extremely subtle and respectful, though. They draw the line at their nutrition. Daniel chapter 1, the official of the court says, here's all the food, eat it, and enjoy it. There's bacon, there's all these kinds of like amazing food, right? And Daniel and the other three guys are like, mm, no, not going to do that. We'll just stick with the kosher food, vegetables and all this. That's the stuff we can know we can eat. And the, the official's like, no, no, seriously, dude, right? Like, you have to eat this or I get in trouble. And Daniel does this extremely respectful. Here's what he says. He's like, please consider. It's like the nicest way of resistance. Please consider this and just test us at the end. Here's the deal. Like, when some of us, like, we want to make every issue a platform issue. We want to stand on everything. How about you just learn some respect? And then voice your opinion. Don't, not the other way around, right? Don't, don't get demoted. Don't get torn down, canceled, whatever. Just show some respect. And then maybe the person in authority could actually consider your stance. When people come to me all the time, and it's like students, and all the, like, their, their attitude and their level of volume is here, I don't hear what they have to say. If they just toned it down to the half point, halfway point, maybe I'd hear them. You know what I mean? When our sons come to me like this, Change your attitude, change your behavior, and then I'll listen to you. Some of us, we need to learn. I've had to learn this too hard of a way. Like, I remember everything was an issue. I was going to fight the man. I was going down with the system and all this. And nobody cared what I had to say because it was so volume, like it was so high and disrespectful. And so here's Daniel, and he, he just considers this. And then he goes, compare me. Compare me to the rest of the people. So guess what happens? They do that. The other line that they drew that was worshiping them as gods. Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge statue. Daniel gets sent off to do some royal court somewhere else. But in the city that he's in, the, the, the statue's made. The worship is supposed to be happening. The fruit, the lyre, and all this. And everyone's supposed to sit down or bow down and worship the statue, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, nope, we're not doing this. And then they even say this. Even if God doesn't save me, we're still not going to do this, right? Like, how audacious can that be? Like, how, like, are you serious? Like, God, if I'm not going to bow down, how easy would it just go through the motions? How easy would it be just to say, oh, I'm just, God knows the intent of my heart. Well, yeah, but it also, your, what's inside your heart comes out of your verbal and your, your actual actions too, right? So don't just go through the motions. Figure it out. What, what's, what line are you going to draw, right? And so part of this process, you know this. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar looks in there. He's like, I'm pretty sure we only sent three, but there's a fourth one in the fire. Sounds like it'd be a great worship song, by the way. Pretty sure it's made. But anyway, so, um, uh, but all of a sudden they're like, what in the heck happened? How did this happen? 
right? And so this is part of that process. Like they, they start recognizing what lines to draw, and they're kind of making this up as they go. Another king, king and kingdom happened in uh, Daniel chapter 6, and they made this law that you can't pray to any god other than the king, and they saw their kings as gods, so it's kind of interchangeable. And Daniel is like, I don't need to do that. He doesn't make a post about it. He doesn't flaunt about it. He doesn't write a blog about it. He just simply keeps praying to the God of Israel, which is Yahweh. And they find out about it. And they throw him in the lion's den. Right? And so then all of a sudden, it's like this. You can feel this angst. But here's the beautiful thing about it. It takes wisdom to know which battles to fight. The way of the exiles, you're going to seek the good of the city. You're going to love the people around you. And you're going to seek wisdom as well. The beautiful thing about the book, the, the, the time of the exile, is do you know when this Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, were put together? It wasn't when David was a king. It wasn't when they had their own authority and all this. It was during the exile that the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, was all put together and canonized, meaning put into like this library form that you can you know, I get to walk around. When you're in exile, are you doing things for your own generation or are you doing for the future generations? Are you seeking the good of the city? Are you loving people well? Are you going to be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, and keep changing the culture around you? And are you doing something that's going to last a generation or more? Most of us, we want our 15 seconds of fame. It used to be 15 minutes, but now we just want 15 seconds on Instagram and TikTok. And we don't even really want to be good. We want to be thought of as being good. But are we willing to sit through the exile, whatever it is, and seek the good of the city, love the people around us, and do something that's going to have a lasting legacy for generations to come? Let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are and everything you've done for us. God, thanks for this beautiful view of what an exile is and how we should actually do it. God, I pray right now that some of us are sitting here and we just need to be in your presence more and more. God, would you allow us to realize that we take you with us and to continue to pray to you and pray for the good of the city. God, would you allow us to, to know that you love us and that you care for us. And our wretchedness, our sinfulness, our, our evil that we've continually made and lived and made those decisions, God, they do not surprise you. And you continually offer grace upon grace. And all you ask in return is repentance. That we would change. That we would stop going our own way and, and turn around and return to you. God, as we do this, I pray that you would create the places that we work, the places that we live, the places that we hang out in. Would you create those into thin places where the veil between heaven and earth is so thin that we just step into your presence. We love you, God. It's in your name we pray this. Amen. Well, hey, if you need prayer for anything, I'd love to meet with you in the back of the green wall. If you're new with us, make sure you stop in at guest services. We have a gift for you as well. And you can take those invite cards and invite people to the new rules for love, sex, and dating next week be a good time. Hope you know this to be true, that God loves you, and I love you, and as we follow him, we'll counter the best he has to offer for us. So let's go. Be the church. Have a good week. We'll see you next Sunday.